we do terrible things to people in American prisons and jails, and people persist in figuring out a way to be human, even in those, even in those settings, even in those uh, conditions. And that's what's really important, I right. think. If the goal is for people to pay more attention to criminalized and marginalized people and to um, find common cause with them. Right. Welcome to the History Studio Podcast. I'm Jim Downs. Today is part of our ongoing discussion on how to tell a story on the page and on the screen. I talk with Piper Kerman, who is the author of the best-selling memoir, Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Woman's Prison. The book was adapted by Genji Cohen into an Emmy award-winning original series for Netflix, which ran for seven seasons. Kerman served as a consultant. She also collaborates with nonprofits, philanthropies, and other organizations working in the public interest and serves on the board of directors of the Women's Prison Association and the advisory boards of the Penn America Writing for Justice Fellowship, Inside Out Writers, Healing Broken Circles, and Just Leadership USA. Can we just begin by you telling us a little bit of your story of how you got incarcerated? Uh, yeah, so I was um, a student at Smith College, which is one of the Seven Sisters, you know, colleges of famed um, educational value for uh, elite women. And it was an amazing place to go to school but also alienating in a variety of ways for me. And I got out of college. I graduated. Why was it alienating? I mean, I found, I found it to be, uh, I found it to be alienating on a lot of levels, um, both on a class level and also on a, even, you know, in the early nineties, you know, I was in college in the late, late eighties and the early nineties but um, there were a variety of things that went on when I was a student there that um, were attention getting in terms of issues around race and issues around class and the tendency of institutions to protect themselves and not individual people. So what were you when so when you're at Smith, what were you thinking you wanted to do when you graduated and like in terms of your career? In terms of your I life? was a theater major when I was at Smith. Um, oh wow! Yeah. So, and I had been participant in theater since childhood. Um, you know, pretty deeply engaged in theater, and um, and acting as a child. By the time I got to college, I was less interested in acting and more interested in dramaturgy and directing and playwriting and wow. other aspects wow. of stagecraft. So, um, still though, I think by the time I graduated, uh, I was also a little disillusioned about the prospect of sort of making a living in the theater, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. So, um, that's a moment of drift for me. I sort of, you know, I walk in that college graduation and I was really, uh, a bit disillusioned about the world in some ways and, uh, a little at sea. And of course that was during the first Bush, um, recession you know, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was president at the time and the economy was terrible. 
And, you know, I got a job waiting tables. I met uh, a variety of, of new and interesting people, including a significantly older woman who turned, who was involved with drug trafficking. And that, you know, I was during that, I was in the midst of what is a very common decade of risk. The age between 15 and 25 is developmentally a very normal time for people to take risks and to expand their sense of self um, to their working through becoming adults. Um, and what I always say is that young people take the risks that are in front of them. So very fortunate young people often get a lot of access to positive risk-taking opportunities and less fortunate young people, um, you know, may have a narrower uh, range of risks or the, which either present themselves as opportunities or are unavoidable. Um, so it's, I think one of the more unusual aspects of my personal life is just the fact that I, you know, sort of left sort of this elite college setting and stumbled into a drug trafficking milieu. And, um, and that was a brief period of my life, really. That was, uh, you know, just a little bit more than a year of my life that I was involved in that situation. That's when I committed the crime that I pled guilty to and that I was eventually sentenced to prison for. But it was more than a decade between committing that crime and actually being held accountable for that crime by the federal government. So I walked into prison when I was 34 years old. I had committed that crime when I was 22. So, so can we... Can we talk about that moment? Because I, I, I want to talk about your memoir and I definitely want to talk about the Netflix series. And I had heard about Orange is the New Black for so long on social media. Everyone was talking about it. It was all of the rage and it just had not yet been on my Netflix queue. And I started watching it. And in the first five minutes, I was totally wrapped because it was the most horrifying opening to any narrative <laughs> that I had ever seen. Like, I, I mean, the opening sequence was when Piper is brought to prison and, and, and she's getting dropped off. And I thought in narrative, we've seen people getting sentenced. We've seen people getting arrested. We've never seen that moment. And what was so shocking to me was how sort of, ordinary it was. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing about prisons and mass incarceration, but especially specifically prisons. Um, I think there's a lot of effort in narrative um, and particularly narrative that has an advocacy cast to it to always focus on the very real horrors of the conditions of American prisons and jails. But I feel like no one is surprised by that. Actually, Americans expect their prisons and jails to be horror houses and to be terrible, awful, you know, depraved, abusive places. And so one of the things that was really important to me in writing the memoir and in participating in the adaptation was for a focus on the individuals who are impacted by the criminal legal system um, to be recognized as fully human, which is hard to do when someone is in the midst of being uh, abused or exploited. There's a whole host, I think, of psychological realities 
in the way that a viewer, a listener, or a reader responds to abuse. And so it was really important to me in writing the memoir, and one of the things that it makes that makes me really pleased about the adaptation, the Netflix adaptation, is that while there are terrible things that take place, um, there are many, many, many moments of um, defiance and joy and uh, solidarity and um, transiting barriers that um, are, I think, not uplifting in a sentimental way, but right. are that to me is the real reminder of people's humanity, right. not the worst abuses that people endure. So you were thinking that it was going to be this abusive place and you did discover a joy, a solidarity. Do you remember any particular episodes that stuck out in your mind that triggered that feeling and of, and that awareness that it in many ways undermined the popular representation of prison? Yeah. I mean, I think particularly if you, in the book, you know, my, I spent uh, 13 months incarcerated. 11 of those months were in a minimum security prison setting, which is, of course, you know, people suffer from neglect in that setting. Um, and abuse can take place and does take place, but uh, it's not as difficult and hardcore as higher security settings. You see those late, you know, you see that later in the book, the last couple months that I was incarcerated, I was in higher security settings, and you see that in the show as well. Um, I think that there are so many, and, and the book particularly puts forward, um, those moments of humanity in the affirmative. Um, I wouldn't say more than the show, but it's more of a focus of the book, the show. I mean, the, the glory of having gotten seven seasons is that we were able to, widen the lens and widen the lens and change the setting and tackle different subject matter um, over the course of such a, a long period of time and to explore a lot of different story arcs, right. which are n either not in the book at all or just sort of the germ of them is in the book. But one of the things that pleased me and one of the things that was exciting to participate in was to take you know small occurrences within the book and see them grow into much bigger parts of the of the show, but there are countless um, examples of those opportunities for solidarity or kindness or just human connection. And a lot of them focus around, you know, because it is also a, a book, you know, a, a set of stories that focus very specifically on women. So things like cooking, holidays, um, all kinds of issues around children. Those are some of the most difficult issues in both the book and the, the show um, because prisons and jails tear families apart in the most destructive imaginable ways. Um, those are the thing, those are the, the areas that in many, and of course, love, you know, lo all kinds of different love, including but not limited to romantic love. Um, and to me, that's all about, you know, the human spirit that no matter, I mean, we do terrible things to people in American prisons and jails, and people persist in figuring out a way to be human, even in those, even in those settings, even in those uh, conditions. And that's what's really important, I right. think, if the goal is for people to pay more attention to criminalized and marginalized people and to 
um, find common cause with them. Right. So when when did the idea cross your mind to write a memoir? <laughs> when I was in prison, I had a bunkie. Most of the time, the the, my, the bunkie I had, my bunkmate, obviously, um, was a woman who was finishing up a lengthy sentence, and she was uh, kind of an OG, you know, uh, very respected, and she uh, liked me well enough. I was certainly not the first bunkie she'd had. She'd had a lot of bunkies, but I was pretty um, obedient <laughs> to her, <laughs> so... She liked me, but uh, we lived in a very noisy, chaotic dorm, um, and things would always be going on in the dorm. So the dorm, when I say dorm, it's a room with 50 women in bunk beds, you know, right? and a lot can go on. But I do remember that my bunkie, when things would be going crazy in the dorm and something lunatic would be happening, sometimes she would turn to me and look at me and she'd say, go home and write a book, bunkie. <laughs> So, but it, I didn't um, decide in earnest to write the book until after I had come home from prison, which was in 2005. And what was, what was your process for that? So I was encouraged um, by many people, including my husband, including, you know, other people, uh, friends to, to write about the experience. And I had never written anything for publication before. I had, you know, um, obviously a, a good, a good education, very grounded in writing. And in my career, which was really in um, uh, video production and marketing, I had done tons of writing, uh, including writing for the screen. But I had never written anything for publication under my own name before. Right, And right. so I was encouraged to do so. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to. Um, many years later, I, I was on a panel at the Brooklyn Book Festival, which was, I can't remember the exact title, but it was basically people who write memoirs about things that most people would want to hide. <laughs> and it was me and... Um, uh, Lizzie Wurzel, who wrote Prozac Nation, and Elizabeth, uh, Catherine Harrison, who wrote The Kiss about, you know, uh, right, incest. Uh, yeah, incest. Yeah, about an incestuous yeah. relationship yeah. she was involved in. Right. So, um, yeah. so I, I, I mulled over it. Uh, but the process, literally, I just sat down. I was encouraged to write, and I was like, okay, I'll try. And I sat down, and I was like, well, what would I want to write about that other people would want to read about? Right. And I wrote three separate narratives basically that were chapter length standalone narratives, all of which are, you know, almost verbatim in the book. And the first one was the first day in prison. Right. So like, what would people, what would I want to write about that people might want to write, read about? Okay. That sort of terrifying, overwhelming, uh, steep learning curve of the first day in prison. Um, the second the second piece that I wrote was about um, uh, one of my neighbors, one of my bunky neighbors in the literally in the next bunk, who was a transgender woman and mm -hmm. uh, and the only transgendered person in that unit during the time that I was there. And she was, uh, you know, a good neighbor and also really an interesting person, but even more so than her individual interest as a character. And she she was you know, a very charming and dynamic person. The other thing that was so interesting to me was the community's response to her presence there. 
because, right. uh, you know, even before she was brought into the unit, like word of her impending arrival began to spread like wildfire. And the differences in people's response to her existence and her presence among us was really fascinating and informative. Um, and that's true of both the women who are incarcerated and also the, the prison staff who controlled us. Um, so there's a big, you know, sort of chunk, even even a very, very first efforts around writing. Um, there's just so many intersections in her story and her presence, you know, in that prison. Uh, and then the final section that I worked on in that very initial exploration was around being put onto Con Air, the federal airlift, and coming face to face with my ex lover and being in a higher security setting, and uh, all of the sort of drama and conflict that that is entailed in those experiences. So those were sort of the first three exploratory pieces. Um, and then I showed them to uh, uh, an agent, a literary agent who was interested in the story already. And he said, if you want to write a book, you can. And that was incredible thing to hear. Um, and I was really lucky that I got um, the encouragement that I got had, I was able to create time <laughs> to do the creative work, because I think that's one of the most difficult things for many people is right. figuring out how to structure their lives in such a way that it affords them time to do their creative work. Um, but I was able, I was not yet a parent and, uh, you know, uh, it was a good moment in time for that self-reflection. And that was during sort of the, I mean, I remember I completed my probation. I had two years of probation. I had been doing some of this exploratory work. And now literally as I completed my probation and was finally, you know, free of the, of the criminal legal system. Right. Um, I, I got a book contract and was able to really sort of set to work um, and took a couple years to write that book. When you were thinking about those three iterations of how to frame the story, were there influences from what you were reading at the time? Was there a book that was similar to it? I can't think of a, of a, text that I took as direct inspiration. There are references to other books throughout my book. So for example, that very first night in prison, you know, I found a copy of Pride and Prejudice on the bookshelf. And like, that was sort of like my security blanket when I, when I curled up to try to go to sleep that first night in prison. Um, this sort of familiar, <laughs> this familiar novel. Um, I think the most important thing was that I knew that no one would read this book if it didn't express um, difficult circumstances with humor and um, not just humor, but also um, humor directed towards myself. Right, right. <laughs> I, and I knew that I just didn't want to write something that was medicinal because I didn't feel like that would be a true reflection of my experience. Right. And I also didn't think that it would be very effective. It wouldn't, it wouldn't accomplish what I really wanted to accomplish. And that was for people who read the book to, uh, to come away with a really different idea about who's in prison, why they're there, what really happens to people. And I wanted a lot of people to read that. I mean, of course, every writer 
um, every creative person fantasizes success. And particularly with writing, I think it's just such a laborious process that you, you have to fantasize success. Otherwise you'd never finish. Um, but in terms of my, my aims, which were definitely to oppose mass incarceration in my own unique way, um, it was important that more people who weren't already thinking about the criminal justice system started to think about it. And right. so it was a question of how to tell the story in the most engaging possible way. So is this, this is happening around the same time that Michelle Alexander does um, the Jim, the new Jim Crow. So there is kind of this moment within the culture where people are thinking about mass incarceration. So do you see your book as sort of participating in that dialogue in some way, and then eventually the series participating in that advocacy vision? So Michelle, uh, uh, The New Jim Crow was published in the same year. Both of us were published in 2010. And I remember I was at a book symposium with her in in Washington, D.C., during that first year when we'd both, and I, I can't remember her publication month, but um, they were right about the same time. And I remember her saying to me, we, did, we, had, we had only just met recently, uh, I'm really frustrated because I'm having trouble getting mainstream, mainstream press for the book. <laughs> and I sort of laughed a little bit and I just said, you know, Michelle, that's because you're talking about the thing that everyone's been avoiding talking about. Like you just have to persist. Like there's no guarantee that you'll find the audience that this book deserves, but you have to persist because you're completely on the money right. um, in terms of topic. And I remember, you know, so I'd been released from prison in 2005 and I was really lucky that I was able to do work on criminal justice issues uh, not long after sort of completing my probation. And I do re- I remember back then, um, you know, in the late, so like 2008, 2009, that, you know, there was a lot of debate in the field of people working for criminal justice reform about how to talk about race in this sort of like, ooh, let's, how do we tiptoe around, you know, what's so incredibly obvious? <laughs> Um, But that was the glory of Michelle's narrative approach is that she told us a narrative which helped us finally understand something that many people recognized but didn't have a good narrative approach to. That's the incredible value of of storytelling um, as opposed to all the other different approaches you can take to uh, writing or to conveying information. But um, a lack of narrative can really hobble people's ability to comprehend what you're trying to put forward, but also to get on board because, you know, we're always, you know, it, from my point of view, the way I think about my work and what I want to accomplish, it is about getting people on board in an right. active way, not just sort of, um, you know, soaking up information like a sponge, but really galvanizing people to right. make to make different choices. How did that transition? How did you go from writing the memoir to writing with Genji Cohen? How did that happen? 
I had an interesting experience. You know, the book was first optioned by Ryan Murphy. Uh, so in the sort of the, the way that things go, I remember <laughs> when it was adapted, I was worried that, you know, it would get done so quickly that people wouldn't, you know, sort of get to dig into the book. And of course, that's hilarious because most things that are optioned in, in Hollywood uh, never see the light of day. So the rights reverted back to me. And that's when I met Genji. Um, and I just really enjoyed, we had a lengthy conversation before I made my decision. And um, she just asked a lot of questions. You know, she asked a lot of questions. She didn't pitch me. She was curious. Um, I just had a good feeling. And, you know, that's, I mean, the truth is that, writers who are looking at, you know, having their work adapted are going to sign away most of their rights. And you generally are going a lot on gut or any other information you can gather about the people you might be collaborating with. You know, my feeling is that it was incredibly fortunate to forge a relationship with the creative person rather than a studio per se, right? because, you know, because at least you're putting your trust in that person's creative ability and creative vision and not simply the, the money folks. Right. right? Um, which is what, you know, a studio is, is basically a revenue opportunity. And, you know, right. of course, Lionsgate, you know, Lionsgate was actually the producing studio and they have, you know, a top notch reputation in terms of the, the technical execution of filmed entertainment. But, you know, Genji's perspective on the work. And, and one of the things that she said to me when I first met her was that she was interested in these tiny, beautiful moments that took place between women. And that, you know, was really what I thought of the, of the book being all about. So right. that to me was a great sign, sort of her curiosity, her focus on, you know, the fact that it was about these relationships between women and the beauty of them, as opposed to the degradation of right. experiencing incarceration and, and um, yeah, that was, but it's a roll of the dice. I'm not going to lie. One of the things that happens when you sort of have a memoir and then it gets adapted to a screen is that the writing team takes tons of different kinds of liberties. And you've already <laughs> kind of hinted, you've hinted at the fact that there was a nun in the original story. You've already hinted at the fact that there was a transgender character. What was something that was completely the writer's room's invention? And and you're cool. I mean, you could be totally cool with it, but and, and that, that it. But but what was their invention? Oh, well, this is a. Um, I I went out to. So you're correct. My my role in creating the show was absolutely as a consultant, primarily with the writer's room. Occasionally, like when we were first getting started, like the production design team had some questions, but overwhelmingly it was around just giving feedback to script or answering questions. My most important role in the show was to answer questions or if I couldn't answer a question to find someone else. So I'd be like, I, I have never robbed a bank, but I know someone <laughs> who has. <laughs> I'll get you, I'll get them on the phone with you. Um, right. But we, I remember I went out to LA, I was living in New York at the time. I went out to LA to spend like a deep dive with the writer's room and they were at the beginning of scripting the first season. And right. so uh, I think we had not even cast 
our primaries yet. That was still, cause I remember there were a bunch of, of headshots right. up on the wall, but I was looking at, you know, there were whiteboards all over the room with, you know, I had never seen sort of the way that they sort of break story and like work on the story arc and, and so on prior to scripting actually taking place. But I was like, what's that chicken? <laughs> doing on the wall and they're like oh the chicken and they tell me the whole thing about the chicken right and I was like it's so funny but here's the thing in an early draft of the book the opening scene of the first chapter at one point was the invasion of sea dorm by a chipmunk not a chicken but a chipmunk but like this idea of wildlife you know invading Right. Uh, or, you know, at least animal life invading um, was originally in the book, but it didn't make it to the final right. cut. Like, that's one of the things that, right. you know, my, I, I remember my, my, uh, my editor really didn't care for that scene. Right. Um, so I really laughed because I was like, oh, it's so funny. There was a story kind of like this in my earlier, in an early manuscript, but it never saw right. the light of day. So I love, I mean, I, I love the chicken. Right. It's a, yeah, it's a peculiar, it's a peculiar sort of motif that runs through the series. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's funny and weird. All right. So let's, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about the kind of diversity and inclusion that the show does so extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. And just back to drafting the memoir, you had a sense you had a sensibility about wanting to include a transgender character. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, that wasn't even a political choice on my part. It was really just like, what's the most interesting stuff? You right. know, what, did, what did I either witness or experience that I thought was most interesting and might be most interesting to other people? And um, I just really, that entire sort of section that I initially wrote was about you know, her arrival at the unit that we were incarcerated at, her, you know, how she conducted herself, her gradual either acceptance or there were people who were never, ever going to accept her, um, you know, observing sort of the grace with which she moved through the world, despite sort of uh, so much judgment and attention being focused on her and then uh, really feeling you know, she was released before I was. And I remember feeling, of course, thrilled that she was going home, but also that I would miss her. Um, but in 2000, I mean, I was writing, the book was published in 2010. So I was really writing those sections in like 2007, 2008, 2009. So this that's a great example of um, something that is from the book that, um, the whole world has really uh, changed and shifted right. and evolved some, you know, to us, to, I, I think a significant extent though we have a long way to go around our ideas of, of gender in general, but also uh, trans people, you know, having, you know, not just a right to exist, but incredible value as part of the community. And, right. and that's something I'm proud of. Um, from that section is that um, I hope that it really highlighted that she was a really important and valued member of the community, at least to me and to many other women who are in that unit as well. Um, 
but yeah, so, and so when the adaptation was coming down the pike, it never occurred to me for a second that Genji wouldn't cast a trans actor in the role. Um, I know that, you know, at the time people were, you know, that was, you know, a big, a big deal that she made that choice, but that's exactly what I would have expected her to choose to do. Like it didn't, didn't occur to me that she would do otherwise. And of course, Laverne Cox is just sort of the right person at the right place at the right time. Um, in in so many ways. Terrific. Right. But the show also had this real cultural, um, resonance because Laverne Cox then appears on the cover of time magazine. And it said, are we at this tipping point? So what did that make you feel like when you're seeing that this sort of idea is now actually reverberating way outside of Netflix and yeah. it's actually leading to a bigger public conversation? I, so, you know, I go back to my own, my own origins. I was sort of raised in a feminist household. I was, you know, I went to a women's college, you know, this idea that women's lives are important and interesting and fascinating and, um, and the fact of the prison setting affords the important opportunity to really focus on women who are poor, women who are mentally ill, women who are marginalized in a whole host of ways, certainly by racism and white supremacy. Um, All those things sort of dwell in the setting. So, you know, for better or for worse, obviously we should be telling people's stories, like we should, those stories, those lives and those stories are important and that we shouldn't be limited to a setting like a prison setting in order for people's lives to be recognized and for people's fascinatingness to be front and center. Um, I just think people really responded to that incredible ensemble cast. They responded to the fact that different women were protected. There wasn't just this single protagonist, right? Like we're so, that's so tired. We're so, we're so tired of seeing that modality of storytelling. It's so played out. And the show did just this spectacular job of highlighting both individual women's stories, but also that sort of that the thing that I think um, people were responding to and that hopefully people continue to analyze and recognize about the show and about the way that, that Genji went about it is that the collective is also its own story in that right. show. Right. So, right, you know, right. certainly with the, with the flashback rubric that she came up with, you know, you see people's backstories, right. you know, individual characters get sort of their moment in the sun of being, you know, recognized as a protagonist, but just as much as that is true, the sort of collective story of what's happening to the women in any of those units um, in, in that, in the specific prisons and we move from prison to prison um, is also just this really important story. And that's much more difficult to do, right? To tell the story of a group is much harder, I think, than that that sort of single protagonist narrative. So in some way, this I, her, Jinji's sort of um, experiment in telling the story of a group, uh, did that 
grow out of the fact that the show is come that the show sort of emerges on Netflix at a time when Netflix was just in and of itself becoming a streaming platform? I mean, is there a relationship do you think between between the two? I mean, I think the stars, from my perspective, like the stars lined up in terms of, you know, the timing, you know, the book being published at this time where, you know, Michelle Alexander's work was gaining, you know, where, where there was a broader and different understanding of mass incarceration and a, and a reconsideration of prisons and, and people in prison. And, um, and and Genji is a very irreverent and curious creative person. And then I remember actually very vividly because I was it was July and I was with my family at the beach and I got a phone call saying we had a really good meeting with Netflix. And I was like the DVD company <laughs> because we were I can't right. remember if we were third or fourth off the runway. I mean we were the very you know at the very beginning of Netflix producing original programming right and we were their first big big hit and that was really lucky and it was lucky because the team at netflix at the time was very small and committed and smart and very um very interested in the themes which are living in the show and i always say the themes from the book that are most important to me are themes of race and class gender, power, friendship, and empathy. And those those themes are all front and center in the show, in every episode, in every season. And the folks at Netflix were, the creative team at Netflix were also interested in those themes and definitely very interested in those themes around gender and queerness and, uh, and also around, um, you know, racism and, and racial um, questions. So that was really lucky. It was really lucky to be so early. It was obviously lucky to be the first, their first big hit because, you know, they were excited. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I think the thing that was thrilling for right. the creative team on the show was not having to do a pilot, right? Being able to go straight to a season order. Um, and Netflix very quickly made commitments, you know, over time, um, to produce multiple seasons. And so that was really liberating, I think, for the creative team. Right. I mean, there is this like in the aftermath of the George Floyd summer and people are thinking a lot more about policing and the people are like thinking more intently about mass incarceration. There's a way that the show has, uh, an investment in issues about race that are really pertinent. And I was wondering, and I actually just remember if you could, I, I, I have two questions, I guess they're connected. It's about Pusey Washington and it's, it's both about how her character reveals these sort of ongoing problems of racism, but then it's also how the show ended <laughs> that, that, that particular episode where there's actually something called the Busey Washington fund uh, in order to draw attention to criminal justice. And I had never seen a fictional character's name attached to that kind of advocacy. Yeah. And, you know, Pusey Washington is a good example. Uh, you know, she, that character is not from the book like that. It, she is a pure product of the writer's room and the adaptation. And um, 
obviously a character that people really loved passionately. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of pain that dwells in these characters and their storylines and the show gets more and more serious. Um, and I'm was not as a, as as someone who's formerly incarcerated and, and having turned over the book for, for people to do what they will with, I was not surprised by that because I think you just can't dwell in prisons and in mass incarceration, whether you're literally incarcerated or whether you're, you know, thinking about it creatively all the time and not, I mean, it's inevitable that you would come to these questions around race, around, you know, you know, the immigration system, around sexual violence, you know, the heaviest themes from the show um, can't be avoided if you're producing a show that is set in prison <laughs> about women. Um, and so, yeah, the Pusey Washington Fund was something that made me incredibly happy as a sort of um, punctuation to the the experience of seeing the show came out come out and all of the fans who were drawn to the show for a variety of reasons and you know the fans have donated uh, about close to a half a million dollars wow and those go directly to yeah there's and there's eight organizations that benefit from the fund and three of them are led by formerly incarcerated women all of wow. them focus on uh issues that impact women most seriously. Two of them are immigration organizations, which are working to free immigrants from det immigrant detention. So um, that's something that, you know, for me as a, as a former, former prisoner makes me really happy. Right. Well, there's always talk like how can the arts contribute to social change? And that is just a clear, direct way that it has. So we're, we're almost at time. So I just have two sort of final questions. First, you had mentioned earlier that you are working on a book. You are writing something. What are you working on now? So I spent uh, more than four years teaching narrative nonfiction, creative personal nonfiction writing classes in two state prisons in Ohio. Wow. A men's medium security prison and the primary women's prison. And I am working on a book about, uh, it's about that, but it's mostly about the men's prison, um, which is an interesting place, a place that, uh, that they tried hard to reform um, with some success. And so that's an interesting thing. It used to be one of the most violent and problematic prisons in Ohio. And by the time I was permitted to teach there, it was one of the safest um, with a lot of programming and a place that, you know, the department would be eager to have, you know, someone come and teach a class. Um, and, you know, I was interested in doing that work, first of all, just because I know that incarcerated people are filled with incredible and really important stories. And some of them, some incarcerated people are like the greatest storytellers you can possibly imagine. And so there's a lot of different ways to tell a story, right? You can write it down, you can sing it, you can, you can, there's a million different modalities for storytelling. The thing that I was capable of doing was te teaching a writing class. And so, um, I wanted to do that. I mean, I just wanted to be of service, but I was also interested in sort of getting back to um, 
a setting and a situation which was closer to reality, which is a little right. bit of a countervailing of, you know, this incredible experience that I've had with, you know, Netflix and Hollywood and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I just wish every writer was as happy with their experience as I have been with this adaptation. I know that that's not always true for everybody, but I just feel very, very fortunate that so many, you know, brilliant creative people, but I wanted to get back to, um, to incarcerated people and their stories and their stories are incredible. And so um, I'm working on, on my book and then we'll, it's two books. We'll publish, I'll publish my book, which is, a complicated story <laughs> um, right. and also a collection of the best of my students writing. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. Right. Oh, and their stories are incredible. Fantastic. Their stories are great and surprising in every way. So is your book narrative nonfiction or more memoir? What's the genre? It's, I mean, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm still in the midst of, of uh, trying to get to my hideous first draft. It is narrative nonfiction, uh, but I'm in there as well. So, right, right. So, I, I think is it fish or fowl? I don't know. But right, I'll, right. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, I have a really good editor, so she'll help me figure that one out. That's good. That's good. All right. And our final question: We always ask all of our guests, "What stories do you think still need to be told?" Oh, <sighs> I mean. Women's stories desperately need to be told. It's, I mean, there's been, I've been really pleased in recent years with some of the quantitative attention paid to whose story is being told in Hollywood and whose stories are not. And we still know that women, you know, do not get the, the sort of bandwidth, time, attention, centrality um, that that they should uh, in terms of how important their stories are, how interesting their stories are. And the same is obviously true for uh, black people and other people of color. Um, I think that I am really interested in young people's story. And that, that brings us back to that, you know, my own experience, like that decade of risk between 15 and 25. Right. So right. of course, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the marketplace for film, you know, for entertainment products, you know, it's not that there are not a lot of young people who are part of, you know, part of entertainment products, but which young people and like what's being told about their lives? Like, what are we learning about young people? Because when I think about my own experience, my own sort of experience with criminality, crime, you know, transgression, and when I look at the lives of my students and, you know, the women that I was incarcerated with, but like my students, I really came to know so much of their personal histories, whatever they chose to write about in class. But a lot of my students chose to write far more about their lives outside of prison than inside of prison. And, um, you know, I feel like young people's lives deserve much more diverse and uh, rich attention than they get. I do think that things are changing. I do think that um, there is an increased recognition that audiences want, you know, far more than they've been given in the past. Right. And, right. and hopefully that continues. That's great. Well, Piper Kerman, thank you so much. It was 
honestly a joy, a total highlight. Uh, you're an inspiration. I love everything that you write. I can't wait <laughs> to see more of what you have in store for us. So mm. thanks so much. Sure. For being here. Great talking right. with you, Jim. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Our showrunner is Caitlin Parker. Our producer is Eli Simon. Our researchers are Jackson Bestrong and Sydney Lamb. Podcast music is by Alex Plappinger. On behalf of everyone at History Studio, I'm Jim Downs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>